Good morning to you, Christ Central, on this Sunday worship service. I'm Harold, one of the pastors, and it is my honor to bring to you God's Word. We began a series entitled Following and Feelings, and we're going to tackle the first one today. That is the guilt. Guilt of our sins. I've entitled Guilt, Lift Me Up. If you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. We're going to turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 32, the first five verses. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Let's give our full attention to this. I'll read it for us. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man. <clears throat> Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For a day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Okay, this is David's Psalm 32. A former director of the British Mental Health Institute, he once admitted, if I could assure all my patients of complete forgiveness, I could send 50% of my patients home right now. The director of the British Institute of Mental Health observed that at least half of his patients were suffering from a problem of guilt. They needed forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, according to the Holy Scriptures, guilt is the result of having committed sin. According to the Bible, guilt is the legal objective condition. It is the result that I have broken and defied God as my sovereign, as my master, and as my creator. Guilt is a result of sin. And the scriptures are much more concerned, and the scriptures address much more of the fact of being guilty legally than feeling guilty. The scriptures are much more concerned to address being guilty, the legal objective condition, than a subjective feeling. Now, several years back, uh, I can't forget it. I was on my way to officiate a wedding, and I was running late that day, and I still remember the cross streets right there, somewhere around Artesia and Cerritos, and there's a stop sign, and I really didn't come to a full stop. It's called a California stop, just a rolling stop. And there was a cop just hiding, and he caught me. The lights came on, and I was like, oh, I can't believe he caught me. I got to be honest with you, as an officer came up to my door, rolled down the window as he was about to begin to me, there was not one ounce of my being that felt guilty. I did not feel like I had done something so wrong, so harmful or egregious to society. In fact, I was just irritated that I got caught. I said, can I have your driver's license, please? So-and-so says, what are you in a rush for? I caught you. You didn't really come to a full stop. I said, I'm on my way to a wedding. Well, he saw that I was all dressed up. He says, what do you do for a living? <laughs> Embarrassed, I said, well, 
Yeah, I, I am a pastor. So you're a pastor? I said, you're really on your way to a wedding to officiate? I said, I am. He goes, show me the wedding program. And I had it. I had the program early this time from the rehearsal. I took it from the passenger seat outside of my Bible, showed it to him, and the officer smiled, blessed me, and he let me go. What an act of mercy. But I was guilty. I did not feel it, but I was guilty. The scriptures speak about even laws that you may not even be aware of. If they are broken because they are given by God, even this renders or holds us guilty. I came across this about three or four years ago. A woman by the name of Kate, 23 years old, she must be about 28 now, from Texas, who describes herself as spiritual but not religious. She's visited a daily confession website almost every day for five years straight. Here's why. Kate describes, I like reading people's confessions because it's nice to know that I'm not any more selfish, petty, conceited, or weird than anyone else in America. You see, for Kate, her issue has nothing to do with God. Her issue requires no forgiveness or salvation or resolution from God. Her greatest issue is feeling like she's worse than the average person. And that whole predicament is what we call self-help therapy or self-improvement. This is not biblical gospel theology. You know, so last week, we began to explore what if, what if your emotional condition and mine, your health and mine, stems from something that psychologists and doctors and professors and medics and even counselors cannot identify or remedy. This series was launched because we want to explore and discover what if my emotional and overall health is impaired in some really deep, profound ways by something that nobody else can really touch or help? What if I and you struggle with deeply spiritual problems, spiritual issues, which require spiritual solutions, like guilt? And this is what the psalmist struggles with. He's struggling and suffering with the guilt of his sins. And notice what he does with it. How does he deal with it? He says in verse 5, it's my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. He uses personal pronouns. The psalmist here in this case does not blame anybody else, his upbringing or background or bad influences, or even some of the disadvantages. Here, in this case, he deals with his personal blame, personal guilt head on. He says, it's my fault. It's my fault. It's mine. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And as long as it's your fault or my fault, then we can have a personal salvation. We can have a personal remedy. We can have a personal healing. 
And I want to say at this point, just because here it's very personal and it is his fault, in a lot of cases it is your fault and my fault, squarely upon my shoulders. The Bible, though, categorically does not deny, though, there are many events and situations in life where it's not your fault. Where you were a victim. Where you have been oppressed. Where there has been injustice historically, repeatedly, systematically, based upon race, class, gender, you name it. The Bible is remarkably sophisticated. The Bible talks about our real life as it is, but here we are dealing with that much of our emotional and overall health stems from personal guilt because of personal sin. And where, in fact, is all of this guilt coming from? Well, David goes on to say, quite sobering in verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Okay, notice what David is confessing here. He says, it's personal to me. That's my sin. That's my transgression. That's my iniquity. And I'm suffering here. I feel miserable. Why? Not because he had a bad work day. Not because some relationships fell apart, although that is deeply, deeply damaging. Not because of indigestion. It's not because of an abstract force out there. It's not because of an illusion. Do you know why David says I'm suffering here? Because my personal guilt has led to God's personal hand coming down upon me. It is God is against me. God is holding me guilty. God is hand, figuratively speaking, weighing down on me so much so, what does he describe? My strength feels like it's sapped. I have no energy. I don't want to get up in the morning. I'm having trouble sleeping. I feel lethargic. Why am I so angry or so depressed? Where is this coming from? He's saying, ultimately, God, it is your hand that is crushing down upon me. Could this be the case? That with personal sin before personal God can produce personal misery? Again, the scriptures here. This is poetry. It doesn't literally have to mean that you are physically ill, physically sick because of a guilty conscience. Some of you feel guilt, by the way, with an act of mercy that your conscience still indicates that. A lot of us, like me with the traffic cop, I felt no guilt. It's been desensitized. But in either case, because of the personal effects of my personal guilt, there's personal misery. And it doesn't just have to be physical. It's psychological, it's relational, it's emotional. It is so deep and pervasive, you and I can't really identify it or remedy it. But here the psalmist does. God, when I feel like your hand is weighing down and crushing down upon me, not only is all my strength sapped, my bones are wasting away and I am groaning all day long. Guilt is a result of sin, subjective and legal, and then the misery and the personal effects of that come from a living God who's personal. So then how can we find relief? How can we be lifted up? Well, I'll tell you how you don't do it. I'll tell you how you don't get relief. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. So here's how you don't get out of the problem of guilt. You just don't talk about it. You keep it secret. You keep it silent. 
You go through the whole warrior stoic mode. I've got this. I can handle it. It's not that bad. Next week, we'll talk about this. So much of guilt is tied to its ugly cousin, shame. Shame. Because of shame, you care more about what other people think. It gets in the way of what God thinks. Shame. Because you're shameful, like apostle, uh, like the psalmist, he says, when I, was, when I kept silent, I didn't want to share. When I didn't want to talk about this even with God, I just continued to suffer. Here's another way that you're not going to solve guilt. You just get busy, you just get distracted, you try to medicate, and you try to absorb yourself and just kind of hide the pain, hide the pain. My friends, do you know how many addictions... Do you know how many scandals? Do you know how many consequences you and I fall into because you simply just want to run and escape reality of pain? And as long as the psalmist is silent or he runs to make himself feel better with time, guilt doesn't go away. Here's another classic mechanism. People will try, but it won't work. If you're the religious type, your church-going time. You've been raised in Sunday school. A lot of you will try this for the rest of your life. Well, you know your sin. You know you're guilty. So what you're going to do for the rest of your life is really dedicate yourself to become a better you. You think that moral improvement, you think that you doing a lot of good things now is going to somehow in God's scale cover over or have God forgive or forget all the things that happened in the past. I think it was Time Magazine that named America's most famous, at least, or most popular pastor is a guy in Texas by the name of Joel Osteen. He is one charming, charismatic, smiley guy. It's amazing. Gift of communication, for sure. But he wrote this one book that is entitled, Become a Better You, Seven Keys to Improving Your Life Every Day. This is a pastor who wrote a book which basically sounds just like a series of his sermons, become a better you, seven keys to, improvement your, to improving your life every day. Do you know that the Library of Congress has a copy of that book and they have classified this book under a certain category? Number one, this book belongs with self-actualization, parentheses, psychology. They see well-read, astute non-believers know the difference between positive thinking, self-help therapy, and an actual biblical gospel. The Library of Congress has categorized Joel Osteen's book as not Christian, but it's good psychology. You and I, my friends, this morning will never get a handle will never experience healing from guilt as long as you're silent, stoic, as long as you manage to just busy yourself and forget about it over time, or by becoming a better you, make it up somehow. How does the psalmist deal with his personal guilt? He confesses. He confesses. Three characteristics of biblical confession. Number one, it's honest. It's honest. It's authentic, not fake. You're being real. You're not going through a show. 
It's honest. Do you notice in verse 2? Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. There's no deceit. Look, God can work with honest people, period. God can never save and help you, though, if you're not honest with yourself. God can work with honestly sick people, but if you think you're well, you're never going to go to a doctor. God can work with honestly broken people in sin, but if you think you have no sin, you don't need a savior. God can work with honestly, honestly needy, desperate people who know something is so wrong and jacked up in my heart and in this world, you have stopped trying all these other methods that just don't work. Honest, there's no deceit. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, Apostle John says this, if we say that we have no sin, if we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us and we deceive ourselves. How do you deal with your guilt? Deal with it personally. Deal with it with confession. First characteristic, it's got to be honest. Here's second, here's second. Notice how there were three, he- three English words which are translated from three Hebrew words. The vocabulary has expanded here. He says, I'm not just going to confess my sins. I'm going to confess my transgressions. And I'm also going to confess my iniquities. Three words. Why? Just because he wants to show off he has a vocabulary? They rhyme better, hopefully, in Hebrew? No. Each word has a distinction from the previous word. And without understanding all the distinctions... What I think the psalmist is communicating is, I'm going to confess all kinds of sins. I'm going to be comprehensive. Not only will I be honest, I will be comprehensive. I'm going to confess all kinds of transgressions, all kinds of iniquities, and all kinds of sins. Sins that I thunk, sins that I felt, and sins that I did. Professor Michael Horton down at Westminster Seminary said something I'll never forget. There are sins in my heart that my hands just haven't gotten around to doing yet. Jesus preached sermons. You don't have to just go commit adultery. You look upon that woman twice, thrice, four times, lustfully. You have sinned in your heart. You don't have to go and sleep with another person. Here the psalmist is saying, I am guilty before God. How am I going to deal with that? I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be comprehensive. I'm going to talk about the totality of my sins. Here's a third characteristic. It goes hand in hand with being comprehensive, does it not? If you're going to talk about all kinds of sins, you have to talk about each sin. Now you have to get specific. Specifically, specifically. My friend, are you in a regular habit of doing that? We actually talk and name it out. It might actually make, make sound a little strange or make you feel strange, but that's actually good. It might shock you, the kinds of things you actually have to say about what you've been doing. Specifically, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5, right? The favorite book of every church-going person. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5, it says, The Israelite, if you are guilty, you have to confess in what way? In what way he has sinned? In what way? Specifically, one by one. Here's why Sunday worship services, which is central to a Christian person's life, but it is not the totality of a Christian life. 
Sundays are to be the first day. It's to launch. It's to inspire. It's to fill you with the Spirit of God. Most of all, it's for you to meet and be changed by Jesus. This is why we exist. But through Monday through Saturday, if all you're used to is doing this, well, you know, on Sunday, when I prayed the Lord's Prayer, God, forgive me of my debts as I forgive my debtors. Oh, that's, that's enough. Like, I, I did that. Like, once a week, I do it with all the group of people. We recite it. I give a general confession of sin. Isn't that enough? Instead of answering it and telling you, is that enough or not? I do want to ask you to consider it this way. Name me any other close, loving, valuable relationship whom you honor that you can get away and do that with. Name me any friend, any spouse, anyone who matters to you, to you, and you know that you did or said something that utterly offended or hurt or broke that person's heart, and now it's threatening your relationship. Can I go to my wife, Sonny, and say, Sonny, you know I went to seminary for this. I'm a depraved sinner. God has already forgiven me. I say my general confessions all the time, but it would not be honoring to the one I hurt, and it would not help my reconciliation because the other person that I have just so offended and hurt needs and wants to hear that I personally acknowledge and own the specific way in which I am hurting this relationship, and it signals to the other person that I am wanting to stop and repent of it. Why would this be any less with God? Why would your relationship be any less comprehensive and specific and honoring and regular? And maybe this is the way, one of the big things that gets in the way of your feeling like you're close with God. A lot of us, you never feel like you're close with God. Can I tell you why? You don't even confess on a regular basis specifically what you are doing to defy God. But here, oh, oh, the psalmist, he's honest, he's comprehensive, and he is specific. He is specific. I remember after one of the Sunday sermons I had preached, I'm not going to give you any timeline because I don't even want to have you to try to think about tracking or, no. And uh, it dawned on me, I could see it out of my periphery, a gal, <coughs> I saw her during the sermon and you could see physical effects of the Spirit of God doing something. Uh, she was just waiting for me, just hovering, uh, she was evidently waiting to talk with me until the crowd and everyone came and went, we finished our coffee or donuts and... Uh, she eventually made her way over after everyone had left, and she barely could ask me. I knew her, care for her. You know, pastor, I, can we set up a time? I said, of course, of course. So she came over my house, Sonny knew about this, and um, sat on the couch, plopped down, and said, you know, pastor, and she could barely look up. Voice trembled started to weep, and she went on to describe to me what had been happening with her and her boyfriend in her two, three-year relationship. We're talking about an esteemed, respected, I mean, influential couple of any church. And she had a hard time even saying what she had done. But it was a confession. 
And it was the beginning. And there was a breakthrough that started to happen. And about a year or so later, that same gal who was so broken could not make eye contact with me on my couch, volunteered to join a ministry who counsels and resources women who are contemplating abortion and to continue to help those who have committed abortions. Her confession before God and before pastor was the open door to how God can deal with her guilt. Until that point, she really couldn't take it. How can we be lifted up? How can we find relief? Honest, comprehensive, and specific. And if you have ever experienced this kind of misery that comes from unresolved guilt of sin, if you have ever kind of tasted or seen that there might be something underneath all these feelings from the past, there's still something that really, really nags. It's an albatross around your soul. It's a dead, rotting, demonic thing. It is a black cloud. It is something you just can't run from. I've got great news for you. Verse 5. Here's what the psalmist says. When I confessed, God, you forgave. You forgave my sin, my transgressions, and my iniquities. The Hebrew word for forgave is nasa. Nasa equals to lift up. Nassau means to lift me up. It used to be, again, back to Leviticus chapter 16, Aaron, the great high priest, would come and stand in front of the whole congregation of Israel, whom he loved, like this congregation I love. And once a year, he would bring out a goat into the middle and he'd put his hands upon the head of the goat and he would confess honestly and comprehensively and specifically all the sins that the people had committed for a year as best as he could. Can you believe that the Israelites were doing this? God commanded them to do it. And Aaron would sit there with his two hands symbolically indicating that as he confessed all the sins of the people, all the crushing weight and guilt of the sins of the people were being transferred onto the head of this goat. And then do you know what God commanded Aaron to do after he confessed the sins of the people for a year? He told him, make sure the goat goes away. Make sure the goat runs away. Make sure the goat never comes back. That's where we get the concept of scapegoat. Scapegoat. And right there in Leviticus chapter 16, there's a magical, magical little word where when Aaron was praying and confessing the sins of the people, it says the goat, Nasa. The goat lifted up the guilt and the weight of the people's sins upon its own head. This is a dramatic, unmistakable preview of what God already had in mind and it was breaking his heart, of what he would ultimately have to do to lift up your guilt and mine 
because he would come down in the person and in the flesh of Jesus Christ, his own son. And when you see movies of Jesus stumbling and having a hard time after he has been lacerated upon the back, after he has been spat upon, after he hasn't eaten or fasted or not drunk anything for about a whole night, a crown of thorns has been humiliating, hoisted upon his head. When you see him stumbling to carry that rough wooden timber of a cross up a hill toward Golgotha, and you feel slightly bad or, or kind of horrified that any man would actually, actually ever have to go through that. I want to tell you you're missing a lot in a movie. Because the movie can only depict that it seems like the physical pain or the, <clears throat> the physical weight or load of the cross was too much to bear. Oh, the scriptures tell you an insight behind the scenes. What was really crushing to Jesus was not the physical pain and the torture and of the cross. He was carrying up Literally, the weight of the sins of the world. And that is why at the cross, Jesus experienced his strength get sapped. He groaned. His bones were broken. Do you see what is happening to Jesus Christ there at the cross? It became his fault. God somehow condemned and crushed the perfect sinless substitute, the scapegoat. And all of a sudden, your guilt and my guilt came crashing down upon his head. So that when Jesus rose again from death, when he is lifted up by the power of God to signal all sins can be forgiven, you and I and our souls can breathe and be lifted up too. Here's all you have to do. Come to Jesus and confess to him. Confess your sins to Jesus. I'm not talking about confess it in a self-therapeutic way, where you're just talking to the walls and the ceiling. No, I am talking about confess to the only one strong enough. Do you know that you need someone supernaturally strong? Because your problem is the hand of God. How long are you going to try to get the hand of God off of you? Are you that strong? Jesus is only supernaturally, and he's the only one perfect enough, sufficient enough, sinless enough, that can actually hoist off the hand of God because that very hand came crashing down upon him. Confess to Jesus. You know, this scene just comes to mind right now in Godfather Part 3, which is the worst of the trilogy. Michael Corleone in his old age comes to a Catholic priest and he is offered a chance to confess your sins. He just starts mumbling, he confesses, he confesses. And as he starts specifically, comprehensively talking about he killed his own brother, Fredo, he breaks down. The Godfather has an emotionally relieving moment. It actually feels good to get that off your chest. But I'm not asking you just to do that. Don't just get it off your chest. You need to get it off your chest to the one whose chest was crushed. You need to confess to the very one that you personally offended and he actually hurt for you to death. Let me ask you this question this morning, all my friends here. You might be thinking, oh, well, Harold, thank you for that really good, thorough, biblical description of what Jesus did with my guilt and 
I need to confess. Yeah, I've done that, been there, done that, but I really don't feel forgiven. Some of you haven't confessed. You can't even remember the last time you confessed to God because it no longer feels like it works for you. You know, pastor, what do I do? I confess my sins and confess my sins and confess my sins, but I don't feel like God forgives me. Can I tell you as gently as possible? You know what you have to stop doing? And I know you do it because I do it. You've got to stop trying all those attempts to confess it fervently enough, to confess it with enough faith, or to convince it with enough tears. You've got to stop in trying to forgive yourself. You've got to stop your own self-forgiveness, self-salvation project. And a lot of the reasons why you confess to Jesus but don't feel forgiven is deep down at the bottom of your soul, you got to stop trusting in your own ability to forgive yourself more than the very ability of Jesus to forgive you. My friend, when you confess your sins to Jesus, we need to trust much more in God's own ability and delight and willingness to forgive you and me of all of the guilt of our sins more than my own ability to forgive myself. Do you really think your sins are too great for Jesus? Do you really? You know that secret thing in your family that you never want to talk about? Jesus came to actually address and heal that too. Do you really think what you have done can out-surpass the broken body and fully shed blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ? Do you think any amount of unbelief or indifference or hatred or bitterness or pride or all the lifetime of pattern of sin that you've gone through, do you think that is more and cannot be handled by the very love of God? Oh, I, I want you to know you're forgiven. And I want you to feel it too. You know how you get to feel it? Trust way more in Christ than in yourself. There's a 1986 film called The Mission. And for some of my younger brothers and sisters here, 1986 is as ancient as like Jeremiah, the prophet last week. It's like the same for you. That is actually based on some historic true events in the mid-1750s. It takes place with a group of Guarani Indians in like our second home. For Christ Central, one of our second homes on the mission field <clears throat> is in Paraguay. But this movie, the opening scene, shows you the Iguazu Falls, the Iguazu Falls, which I have yet to go to. Little, little bitter to missionary Pedro Cho yet that he hasn't taken me there. Because he says, you know, Harold, the Iguazu Falls, the Niagara, Niagara Falls like water, dropping water in a bucket compared to the Iguazu Falls on the border of Brazil and Argentina and Paraguay. The first scene has a Jesuit missionary who's strapped to a wooden cross and they put him down the river and he goes to the White Water Rapids and then he basically falls over the falls upside down. He is martyred. And after the opening credits, you see a new 
group of missionaries who bravely come to the same village that just took their predecessor. Well, early on in the movie, you're introduced to a guy, a mercenary, slave trader of Guarani Indians. And he actually ends up killing his own brother in a jealous fit of rage because he was sleeping around with his fiancée, played by a young and strapping Robert De Niro. His character name is Captain Rodrigo Mendoza. After Rodrigo has done slave trading for a life and killed his own brother, just like the Godfather, you see him in like this prison cell, despondent, not eating. Looks like he's on suicide watch for like six months. Father Gabriel, played by Jeremy Irons, whom some of you would know is, that's the voice behind Scar and The Lion King. He comes up to Robert De Niro's character and offers him a chance at penance. Captain Rodrigo Mendoza can't think or imagine of any way he could be forgiven of what he has done. So Father Gabriel gives him a chance. You follow me. The next scenes in the movie, he has this ginormous, heavy load of his own steel armor and sword wrapped in like a fishnet type of bag, strapped across his chest. And he is following the fathers in the jungles through rivers, over ginormous rocks, up and down cliffs. He stumbles, he fails, but he keeps carrying that thing along. He does it so long because he has so much determination and pride. Some of the other fathers tell Father Gabriel, he's done enough. They can't handle it. They feel so bad for him. Tell him to stop. He's done enough. Do you know what Father Gabriel turns around and tells the other fathers? He says, but he doesn't think so. And as long as he doesn't think so, neither do I. So one day they arrive to a gathering of Guarani Indians, Rodrigo Mendoza, with, I think, a perfect visual and symbol of the crushing weight and guilt of your past crimes and sins. Literal baggage. And he's lugging this along up a cliff, and then the fathers and Rodrigo Mendoza arrive on the plateau with the gathering of Guarani Indians. Can we show that slide? We've actually has a visual of this. And as he is lumbering up right here, when he gets to the top, one of the Indians comes with a knife. And of course, it looks like He's going to go kill the very man who has been slaughtering and trading them as slaves. Puts the knife to his neck, but then does the most surprising move. Instead of slicing his neck, he takes that knife and he actually cuts that thick rope. And he cuts off the load. And he shoves and kicks that load over the cliff down at the water below. And then right there, Captain Rodrigo Mendoza completely breaks. Because ultimately, he had to learn someone else has to cut off that burden. Someone else has to cut off your guilt. See, as long as you carry it, you're just going to continue to carry. And it's going to crush you. But if the very one that you so offended comes in forgiveness and cuts it off, lifts you up, there is a relief and a joy that's hard to describe. Next slide, please. 
Robert De Niro is such a good actor. You look at this face, and I showed it to my wife for the first time, because again, she's seen no movies before 1990, and I saw her weep. That's what actors do. But the tears of relief and joy when you know your weight and guilt has been dealt with. Here's what my good Catholic missionaries and priests are heroic and of great character, many of them, and the Jesuit missionaries of the past who I admire and revere. But here's what they will offer you. Here's what a Jesuit Catholic missionary can offer you. Are you guilty? Do you have a lot of sins? Here, here's a way you can work it off. It's called penance. But then here comes Jesus. Are you guilty? Do you have a lot of sins? I'm going to offer myself. Because I worked off all your sins once and for all. Do you believe this? Do you believe Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, after he had made purification for sins, the great high priest, after he had made purification for sins, he sat down. Why is Jesus sitting? He's signaling to you. There's no more work to be done. You don't have to carry baggage. You don't have to cry harder. You don't have to pray longer. You don't have to try to forgive yourself. You don't have to prove like you're worthy enough to be forgiven. Jesus says, I am sitting because all the blood that needs to be shed to cover over every transgression and over every iniquity and over every sin has been shed and paid for. So how blessed, how blessed, that word means happy and whole through and through. How blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. How blessed are those to whom the Lord does not count iniquity. How blessed are those whose transgressions are covered. That's how he opens. How blessed, of course, because you have been lifted up. Lifted up. Here's all you have to do. Confess to Jesus. The great scapegoat. The ultimate savior. And when you confess honestly and comprehensively and specifically to him, I assure you, look to him more than yourself. And believe and feel blessedness that comes from the forgiveness of sins. And by the way, friends, the only sins you're ever going to overcome, the only sins you're going to make progress against, the only sins you're really going to repent of are the forgiven ones. They're the forgiven ones. Not the ones that you still feel Jesus is not enough for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and for your spirit. Oh God, and I pray you would bring each one this morning 
to the only one who saves, the only one who can forgive. Jesus Christ, your son, bring us to him now, right here, right now. Open up our mouths and our souls and help us to confess. Help us to confess. Can we take a couple moments of silence here?